Hey all, we're off this week, but we'll still have some pre-taped episodes for you before we shut down for the year starting on Thursday. Today, we're re-airing an episode that we taped in late October looking at how Quibi crashed and burned so quickly. With the service shutting down earlier this month, I thought it would be interesting to revisit the first casualty of the big streaming wars. Enjoy. Quibi, the short-form video streaming service loaded with A-list Hollywood talent and a legit media mogul in Jeffrey Katzenberg, is done for. So what the heck happened? Roger Chang, this is your Daily Charge. With me is media reporter Joan Selzman. He's been on top of the Quibi story before people even knew how to pronounce its name. Welcome, Joan. Thanks. It's great to be here to talk about this dramatic flame out. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Quibi was always the odd duck out of all the, the new streaming services that have emerged over the last year. Uh, for just for listeners who don't stay on top of the streaming wars, just can you give a quick description of what Quibi is and what's happened to it? Quibi was a mobile, initially mobile only, then kind of transitioned to be mobile centric streaming video service that made serial like TV in very short episodes. Everything was like 10 minutes or less. And it was very, very expensive programming. They made big budget programming with really big stars. So its pitch was that it was kind of like a curated YouTube only with like the biggest and brightest of Hollywood involved. The problem is they launched this service that was designed to be watched mobily on the go in those like brief moments of your day where you have a spare 10 minutes to watch something, getting coffee, waiting for a bus. They launched it at the beginning of all the lockdowns that were keeping people trapped in their homes. So they had a mobile on the go service launching when nobody was mobile or on the go. That's one of the problems with it. But there's this underlying consideration that the premise of the service, given that people already have YouTube and they can watch other things on the go, they can watch Netflix on the go on their mobile phones, that the premise of this being a service at all was flawed from the beginning. So what's happened, at least as far as we know right now, is that Quibi, instead of trying to survive after six months is going to just shut down. We don't know exactly when, but at some point the service is going to go dark and this programming is going to, I don't exactly know what's going to happen to all this stuff that they made. Yeah, no, I, I want to get into that, but it's just, it's interesting just sort of looking at the background of it or the, the foundation that this company was built on, right? $1.7 billion in funding, Obviously, Katzenberg, Meg Whitman from Hewlett Packard, lots of A-list talent. Uh, but I mean, do you think looking back at this now, like was was the model just fundamentally wrong, or was it just a matter of bad timing and and launching in the middle of a pandemic? I remember Quibi even before they had a name. I believe they Katzenberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg, the Hollywood mogul, and Meg Whitman as you mentioned, the CEO of the service, they went to South by and they had this whole presentation. And I remember coming out of this presentation being like, these people have no idea what they're getting into. You know, they had really, really ambitious goals. They talked a really big game, but they're getting into something that is really hard to break into and going up against something like YouTube, which has 2 billion people 
watching it every month. So that's one way to kind of put in perspective whether or not the pandemic was the real, you know, silver bullet that killed Quibi. But I'll also mention that I did a I did a poll on on Twitter asking um, people this exact question because they Meg Whitman and Jeffrey Katzenberg they wrote this open letter. Um, they apologize for disappointing their investors, their workers, their talent, um, and they said in there, you know, we may never know what was the problem here. Was it timing or was this? a bad idea to begin with. And so I had a poll on Twitter quoting that portion of the letter and saying, well, which was it? Quibi equals a bad idea or timing? And I think 86% of people said that Quibi was just a bad idea to begin with. So, Well, that, that's, a, that's an interesting point. They, they were charging $5 a month. As you, as you note, YouTube it's sort of the closest competitor with short form content. And like, I, which I understand, like I can actually appreciate the attempt to make, you know, five to 10 minute videos because that's 10, that's sort of where my attention span is nowadays, especially if I'm juggling kids, but the, the notion of charging $5 a month, you know, YouTube even tried this with their, their premium service that, that didn't really work out so well. Like that, which leads me to wonder if like that, just charging a fee for this, was that just sort of the, the, the big gate uh, here or, or, or what, if, if, if it was something else? Well, you know, when Quibi launched at the beginning of this pandemic, as, uh, you know, people were losing their jobs in droves, they did make this decision to offer a very extended free trial. I believe it was a three-month uh, free trial to the service. So it did have, for half of its lifetime at this point, um, basically it was a free service to a lot of people. But I think that, it's certainly true that something being free means a lot more people can watch it um, and experience it and then share it and talk about it. But there are a lot of other things that Quibi did wrong. I mean, the fact that you couldn't virally share any of these programming, it wasn't built into the service that you could, you know, take a clip and post it on Twitter or put it on TikTok, or even like, yeah, the fact that TikTok has thrived, um, you know, that's short form programming, it's user generated, completely different kinds of programming, but that's thrived at the exact same time that Quibi has so difficultly struggled. And I think it really just speaks to the fact that succeeding in streaming is hard. It's really really hard. And pure hubris, gigantic budgets and A-list talent aren't enough if you don't understand your audience. And I really don't think that Quibi understood the market it was trying to get into or the audience that it was trying to reach. Got it. And I, I confess, I, I missed out on that 90-day trial. I think I, I signed up like a day late and I just said, forget it. Um, and so I, I confess, I, I never watched any of the content. I know you have a lot more extensively than I have, for example. Um, and the only thing I really know is there's some sort of meme about a golden arm. I don't even understand what it's about, <laughs> but like what, if you could talk about like, what was the content like? Was, was it, was there stuff worth watching on Quibi? Yeah. I mean, like the mix of content on Quibi, the proportion of stuff that was garbage to the proportion of stuff that was good, it all comes down to personal taste ultimately. But the proportion of stuff that like that I enjoyed watching and would watch again and would probably have been really popular if it had been on Netflix was there was stuff there. There are definitely programs that I thought were really good. There was a program, a documentary 
about LeBron James and his school in Akron, Ohio that I thought was great. There was another basketball related documentary about the Clippers that was really great. Um, The Golden Arm is the one, I I think the only thing on Quibi that ever had any sort of virality memification on social media, um, which was like basically like a super campy horror um, horror series. And it, I, I'll die on the hill that the Golden Arm episode of 50 States of Fright is, is worth watching. So if you can get a free <laughs> trial to Quibi now, which I believe you can, they're not three months, but you can get a free trial. Um, everyone should at least try to watch the Golden Arm. <laughs> but but the, point, the point that I want to make is, you know, earlier this week, Netflix reported its quarterly results, and they mentioned how this originally YouTube subscription series, Cobra Kai, was watched by 50 million accounts in a month. And even if there is great content on a service, if you don't have tens of millions of users or hundreds of millions of users, you can't get Netflix levels of audience just by virtue of your content being good. It has to be good content that you know how to deliver to the right audience. And, you know, I, I, there's reasons why I regret that Quibi had to fail so disastrously. I think that it would be really nice if something different, if it wasn't just a copycat of Netflix, if a service like that could succeed. But the fact that, you know, it's not for want of money and it's not for want of talent. There was obviously some sort of strategic misfires that happened that brought it down too. Got it. And, and yeah, you brought up Cobra Kai, which, yes, was debuted on YouTube before moving to Netflix. Uh, do you think any of this content might move over to other platforms or because it's short form, would it make sense? Um, I, I know there, there's still a lot of uncertainty on, on what happens and, and really what the, what the rights are like. But uh, what do you think? Is there is there a potential or an opportunity for that? There's certainly potential. From what I understand, the, the, the licensing agreements, um, the contracts that 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 Quibi has carved out with its programmers are like all of these deals. They're private and the company doesn't necessarily um, get into each specific deal. But generally speaking, it's understood that Quibi had no long-term rights to this programming from what I understand. And so in this process of winding down the service, it's going to be shopping its assets Quibi's assets to potential buyers in order to recoup some money that it can then return to the investors that put $1.7 and $1.75 billion into it at the beginning. So it's going to be trying to shop and sell these assets. But from what I understand, those assets that it's shopping aren't necessarily the programming. It's the technology and other stuff like that. The programming itself might be scattered to the winds, you know, as the timeframes of the short-term licensing deals that Quibi had for these shows elapses. I believe in most cases that's two years, but again, it's unclear and I'm waiting for Quibi to get back to me with any sort of clarity that they can provide. It seems like after a certain frame of time, this programming should revert back to most likely the people that were the producers of it. You know, like, for example, Chrissy Teigen made that courtroom, like, reality show, Judge Judy-style show. Presumably that would revert to the production company that made it, which I believe is her own, and she could decide where she wants to put it, whether it's on YouTube or license it to Netflix or license it to another company. At that point, it means that yeah, that that this programming could just become scattered to the wind and it it manifests in various ways depending on the people who get to make those decisions decide to do with it. 
Got it. And you talked about the technology and one of the, I guess, the more unique aspects of Quibi was this turnstile capability, the idea where if you changed the orientation of your phone, uh, that would, would change the way you, you showed the episode or change the angles. Uh, I'm curious how that, I, I know there was a lot of problems with that gimmick and there were a couple of instances where I could sort of see the novel uses of it, but did they actually take advantage of, of Turnstile effectively? There were a few programs that came out that used Turnstile in in interesting ways that you wouldn't be able to do on just like Netflix um, or a, I shouldn't say Netflix because Netflix doesn't automatically um, rotate in the way that Quibi does. But the point is there were instances of series that, for example, there was a Steven Soderbergh related series, a thriller that came out where um, a young man, like his car crashes in the wilderness in the middle of the winter, and he's trying to connect with people and figure out there's a whole mystery thing. I obviously didn't watch this, but I did watch the promo about it. Anyways, the point is, when you flip the screen to vertical, like you would be holding your phone if you were this character, you see what he's seeing on his screen, whether it's like a FaceTime video, him trying to call 911 or a friend, or him searching on his phone for emergency services or, or, or whatever it may be. But once you rotate it back to landscape, then you see what the camera is capturing in this sort of scripted drama. Um, so there were those are things you could, couldn't do on other services. And it's a shame that, that well, we don't know, maybe this technology will get shopped to somebody and maybe a YouTube picks it up and says this is something we could really use and adapt, make available to our billions of people that use YouTube. Uh, but it's 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 remains to be seen what actually happens to it, and it could be that you know this is technology that Quibi got sued over. This um, interactive video company named Echo, which is relatively small but has some significant backing, Walmart's a backer of it. Um, they sued Quibi, saying, "Hey, we took meetings with you, or we took meetings with people that are now working for you, and you stole some of our." ideas. You sold stuff that we have um, We have trademarks and copyrights and patents on. Um, Quibi has rejected those claims, but Echo said they're going to continue to pursue this, legis- this, uh, this, um, sorry, this, uh, this lawsuit against Quibi, even though the company is sunsetting. So that technology itself might not be something that anyone wants to buy. It might be toxic. Got it. And I guess just to sum things up, I mean, do you think there was anything Quibi could have done to avoid this fate. And I, I know there's the idea of this pandemic, it's this extraordinary circumstance, but was was this sort of, uh, was it doomed from the beginning or, or was there anything they could have done? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, when you have that much money, that much talent, of course, you can just make different decisions. Like, <laughs> don't launch at the beginning of a pandemic. Um, decide to hold off. They're also, you know, in in the press release and in this uh, joint letter, they talked about, you know, Quibi still has hundreds of millions of dollars, um, at least enough to continue operating for a period of time. They could have pursued going to a sort of freemium model, which is where a certain amount of functionality of the app, a certain proportion of the catalog, perhaps, is available to anyone to see who downloads downloads the app. It's only after 
you decide you want to unlock that reserved paid portion that you actually have to subscribe. And they talked about how they considered, hey, we could go to a freemium model, it would, but it would have required more investment in you know, this dumpster fire where they just poured money into making this ridiculously high cost programming without thinking about what if our initial assumptions are wrong? Um, you know, they, they, I mean, like this, this is a company that got a, a Super Bowl commercial before they launched, you know, like they, they went big and they were aiming for the wrong target. Um, so yes, to answer your question, there are definitely things they could have done to avoid certain death, but <laughs> they've decided we want to go out gracefully, go out with grace, as Meg Whitman put it and return the money that they do still have and can still recruit to the investors that put money into it. And that makes sense. Katzenberg, he's a Hollywood guy. Much of their funding came from the major studios. All the major Hollywood studios invested in this thing. And so he doesn't want to just continue to like waste away money from people that know him, he knows, and are going to hold him accountable for the way that he's been a steward of their money. All right. Well, I find it fascinating that the uh, the much maligned Go90, which was Verizon's also mobile-only streaming service, uh, lasted three years. So roughly six times as long as Quibi, which... Uh, <laughs> and it, and I, I, <laughs> I made fun of that thing constantly. I know, but like that goes to show like so much of this has to do with leadership and their decision-making and their strategy. Like, yeah, Go90 lasted three years, but it probably was much less used than Quibi has in this in this six month period. It just has to go with like, you know, Verizon wasn't shoveling billions and billions and billions of dollars into Go90, especially after its initial rollout. They just kind of kept the lights on for a long time. And <laughs> and at this end, it's just a different strategic decision for Katzenbury Whitman to say, we're not going to be keeping the lights on very much longer if we're just going to. And that also goes to show, you know, it Go90 was part of Verizon. It was part of a multi-billion dollar company um, that could afford to continue to invest in something to see how it pans out because it's in proportion a very, you know, a fraction of its business, a, a microscopic, well, not microscopic, but a very small fraction of its business. And it's not its entire strategy. But, you know, like I would point out that yes, Quibi is really fun to make fun of. It's a gloriously, gloriously epic failure. But at the same time, Apple TV Plus, from all that I can tell in terms of the traction that its programming has gotten, its search interest on Google, has like as much or even less interest than Quibi does. It's just the fact that Apple is a gigantically capitalized company. They can continue to pretend that it's a, that Apple TV Plus is magical and delighting people, even if the number of people it's delighting is less than the number that Quibi has had. It's just a matter of where you are in the world and you know the resources you have to be able to spin it the way that you want in a way. Gotcha. All right. Well, Joan, thank you for your time. You can read her story on CNET.com. If you have any questions, hit us up on Twitter at The Daily Charge or send me a text message by signing up at 646-461-4291. 
Also, please subscribe and rate the show. It really helps us out. For The Daily Charge, I'm Roger Chang. Thanks for listening.